We Grow Together podcast. This is Laura DeFrancesco, founder and CEO of Flourish Coworking Space and Dean Street Law. Flourish is a lush, sustainable, and inspiring space to co-work in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and now brought to you globally with the We Grow Together podcast and our online community and courses. We are so excited to sit down for our conversation today, and I am here with our co-hosts, Lindsay and Casey. Hi, everyone. It's Lindsay, the co-founder of Flourish. And I'm Casey, the community manager of Flourish. And we're so, so excited to be chatting today with Courtney Richardson. She founded the Ivy Investor, such a cool, cool platform that I'm excited for us to dig into more. And she is an attorney as well. Courtney, would you like to introduce yourself? You did such a good job. I don't know what more I can say. So I am the founder of the Ivy Investor and I am an attorney, I guess by day, like I put my attorney cape on and then at night, you know, I run a pretty busy business. I love that you say it's a business because it truly, truly is. Can you share more about that? So, well, I mean, so to that point, I started the business as a blog for just a way for my friends to not bug me when I was doing billable hours. Um, so, you know, they would call like with big, like financial things. Like they wanted to like roll over their 401k. They wanted to open 529. They were trying to save for a house. So many different questions. And I, what I noticed is that a lot of people just didn't have the basic financial knowledge. And so, you know, that conversation kind of goes a little long. And then before I know it, I'm looking up and it's 60 minutes have passed. And I'm supposed to be billing because I work at a big law firm. And I'm like, time out, guys. I'm going to put this on a blog. And then from there, people were asking like, hey, I need more information. Do you got? Do you have classes? And then that's kind of like how the business was birthed. It was very organic. That's incredible. Can you share more about your experience in finance and what brought you to that point? Well, it was kind of, I, I always laugh because it's, it always seems like it seems like a straight line to a lot of people and a lot of things were just kind of just happening. <laughs> it wasn't really planned. So I graduated from uh, undergrad with a degree in philosophy. I took a couple of business classes, nothing really major, but I was planning to go to law school, but I was a little overwhelmed from uh, my philosophy program. My philosophy program, I think at the time was like second in the nation, very vigorous. And I was just like, you know, I don't want to go to school anymore. I'm kind of schooled out. So I was holding off on going to law school. So my parents were like, this is great. You graduated. So you need a job. Um, so I put my resume out on Monster. And um, I didn't really get that many hits because, again, I was philosophy um, major. And then I had American Express Financial Advisors reach out to me. They said, hey, do you want to be a financial advisor? I'm looking around like on all of my my long list of job prospects, which was at zero. <laughs> and I was like, sure I do. So I ended up being a stockbroker. I ended up getting what's called a series seven, which is a general securities license. And then a 66, which is like the laws about securities, but more specifically, it allows you to charge for your advice. So that kind of allows me to give someone a financial plan and charge for it. And then I had a life accident and health um, insurance, which allowed me to sell life insurance and disability insurance. So that's kind of how the thing started. And then I really ended up hating the job that I started in. I had to make
make like a hundred calls a day or a hundred dials a day. I was getting paid eighteen thousand dollars a year, and it was just terrible. So um, ended up quitting, um, moved forward, and got a couple of part time jobs, and then I found a job at a bank. Um, did kind of a banking role, and then I was uh, got a chance to go into banking and investments together. And then I was recruited from there to Merrill Lynch, where um, I did 401k service. Um, I really became like a 401k nerd. And then I got a chance to be promoted to assistant vice president of global wealth management, where I was doing um, high net worth advising for my, like the average client was about $3 million of the portfolio we were managing and um, kind of making recommendations for. So um, it, as you can imagine, the stock market crashed, um, you know, maybe about about two years after I was promoted. And soon after the stock market crashed, about six months later, I was laid off. So then that's kind of where I, I lived in the Philippines for a month. Very random story. Um, and then I decided I went to law school from there, did oil and gas work, which is kind of like real estate on steroids. Um, then from there, I ended up working for the Pennsylvania Department of Revenue um, as governor's counsel. Then I ended up working for the city, um, a city of Philadelphia as an assistant solicitor. And then I ended up working at my current law firm. So kind of in there, like when I was working at the big law firm, when I first got out of the law school, that's kind of when I started the blog. So it's about six years old, but the blog is six years old. The business, I would say it's more like three or four years old because that's kind of what made like the blog kind of transitioned into the business. So that's my, my roundabout path to the Ivy investor. So if you could have told me in 2003, I'd be here, I would have laughed in your face. (laughs) That's incredible, but such an amazing trajectory and winding path. I think it's important for people to hear that path because a lot of people see and assume straight paths, right, in whatever success story they hear. And it's really helpful, I think, grounding for a lot of people to see and witness that there are so many different paths to get to where you are today and wherever the person wants to be. So that's such cool experience. Can you share more about what the business entails now and how you sort of balance your time between your legal work and your business? Balance. What? Balance. Right. Balance. <laughs> I know. I I have my own personal answer to it, but I won't steal the stage from you. Oh, no. I mean, I, I think it's like some days it's kind of like um, a scale. Like some days one side is higher than the other, but there's it's never – ever balanced, uh, which is, which is fine, you know, which I just think is, is a really just good example of life. It's never, you know, some days you're like some part of your life is doing like killing it. And the other part is like, you know, it's like a deflated balloon, but in terms of kind of how I manage all of it, uh, it's, it can be a little much. <laughs> um, and in terms of the business structure, and this is kind of where I manage, um, I run classes. Um, I have a pretty heavy Instagram um, kind of profile and I have a Facebook and then I'm also part of what's called the Black Wealth Project, which we started kind of mid swing of COVID where we do like a town hall every Sunday at seven on Facebook and YouTube. So we have that conversation. So we have a conversation there. Um, I do classes and the classes that I do are, you know, Stocks 101, which is very basic. Um, all the way up to things that are fancy, like in how to invest in an IPO or how to invest in cannabis. Um, and then I have classes that are kind of trying to um, make sense of the retirement world. I have 
how to invest in mutual funds, which your retirement accounts are made of, and how to invest in ETFs, and how to invest in dividends. So just kind of the range of investment um, choices that are out there in terms of the stock market. Um, I try to break it down relatively easily and simply in classes and online and kind of in conversation. So that's the model. I was ju- I just got off of tour. So who imagines that you would be in, on tour for a financial, you know, as a financial person? But we were on, a, I think it was a five, was it five cities? I feel like it was five cities. So it was Atlanta, Chicago. Yes, it was five cities. Atlanta, Ch- Atlanta in March of 19, uh, Chicago in June of 19. We did Philadelphia and New York in October 2019. And then we finished up the tour in Houston in December. So we did a tour um, basically focusing on African-American women, um, teaching them how to invest. So we, uh, it was, I think, four of us that talked about different aspects of investing, from investing in the stock market to investing in real estate, um, kind of all the different aspects of investing. So that's what we ended up doing that way. So um, that's kind of part of my business, is, you know, kind of public speaking and having these big conversations. But as you can only imagine in Corona, like in the Corona world, you know, these kind of, we were packing the house and like we sold out um, the Dusab uh, Museum. It's the African-American Museum in Chicago. We sold that out. So I believe it's like over 300 people. So we're definitely not doing anything like that in COVID world. So we're pretty much um, all online now. Uh, we were pretty, I was pretty much, my personal classes were online that I was teaching and that were available on demand, but I still did like public, you know, speaking, speaking um, in person in front of groups. But now that everything is completely online. So that's that's pretty much the business model. And like I said, in terms of I try to give myself a schedule, um, I try to work out, um, I, I try to work out, I try to basically bill. And then if there's something that's pressing in the IV investor I deal with, but then I pretty much kind of shut down my nine to five around six, 630. And then I kind of work on the IV investor, whatever it's pressing uh, for that day or that kind of that period. Um, you know, until pretty much I go to sleep. <laughs> so that's that's how it works. I love that. That sounds a lot like how my life is structured. And your answer to the existence of balance is very similar to mine. I love that you were counseling high net worth individuals and that you're making this information so accessible now. Can you share how you can take some of the tips that you've learned from counseling high net worth individuals and bringing it to the everyday average consumer? I think the biggest thing is that is that more so than money, it's mindset. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is that money is a manifestation of what's going on in your mind. And what I mean by that is that, you know, as women, we, we tend not to negotiate our salaries as much as, as other, as men do. Uh, we tend to do things that, um, you know, if we see a job, we're like, you know, there's a listing of five things or six things. We're like, ah, only, I only really hit four. I might hit five, but that sixth one I haven't done or I don't have experience in. And we kind of count ourselves out. But what I've noticed from dealing with high net worth clients is they just kind of like, I'm just going to try it. Like, I can't tell you how many times that that was the conversation. You know, we would have a conversation about their investments. We'd have conversation about kind of life in general. But, you know, one of the things that I always loved about the way that people moved is that, um, how do, how do I explain it? They were just kind of like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to go for it. And then we'll see what happens. 
And that was the biggest takeaway from that is that I'm going to go for it. I'm going to see what happens. And like, again, it has nothing to do with money, but it actually manifested in more money for them. If that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. That makes such perfect sense. And I love how you say like money is a manifestation of mindset. I think that's a really, really important part and like really cool to hear from someone who's like an investment and money specialist too. So I think that that's awesome. I'm curious when you are talking to, you know, someone who really doesn't have much of an understanding of investment like myself. So I'm really asking this for myself, but I'm like wondering, like, what are just some of the basics you, you start out with when you're talking about investment? Like, should people be focusing on like a retirement at first? Like, what are those first steps people can start taking? So the first steps is that you, you kind of have, you made a really good point about retirement. You have to contribute to your retirement. We have no idea what social security is going to look like. It's pretty much good. I mean, at the very minimum, we know it's not going to be sufficient if it's there. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is, is that when I'm talking to people about investing, the big picture point is this. I'm like, you go shopping every single day at the supermarket, right? Or not every single day, I hope. (laughs) Um, But I feel like with Corona, I feel like I've gone to the supermarket way more than I normally do. But you understand the idea of pricing at the supermarket, right? And and what I mean by that is that when I go to the supermarket and I see that bananas are like three for a dollar, I'm like, well, that's pretty expensive. You know, I automatically have that in my head, like, ah, that's not cheap. But then, you know, when people come to the stock market, they kind of, they don't really think the same way, but that it's exactly the same thing as you going shopping. You know, you're trying to figure out like, hey, is this worth what everybody's paying for it or what they're suggesting I should pay for it? That's the stock price. So I also liken it to Macy's. Like if I go to Macy's, I see this leather jacket that I absolutely positively love. Um, but I look at the price. The first thing I'm going to do, like, oh, I love it. You know, it looks great. It, it, it looks like it wears well. It's very smooth. It's buttery. What are you going to do? You're going to look at this, the price tag. And then, I mean, there's been plenty of times I look at the, the full price and go, mm, I'm not spending $300 for this coat. But in my mind, I kind of think, you know what? I would pay 200 I would definitely pay 175 because I know the quality. I know that it's going to wear well. I know it's going to last you know, forever or our, our idea forever. So I kind of start with those beginning concepts. I take what people know on a day-to-day basis, what they interact with on a day-to-day basis, and, and impute it onto the stock market. So then we have the conversation about, you know, Amazon. So when I look at Amazon, I think it was trading like $3,000 a share. And I'm like, I'm not paying $3,000 a share for Amazon. But in my head, I'm like, you know what? If Amazon was a third of that, I probably would scoop up a couple because, you know, I think it's a good company, all those other things. So I kind of start that conversation right there. Um, not everybody needs to invest in stocks per se, but I think understanding how the stock market works, looking at it at a market, like as a market or as a shop is a better conversation to get started. So first understanding or getting on top of your retirement because retirement, you have to, and understanding all your options. Um, There's so many options when it comes to retirement. You have a 401k and everybody seems to think that they all have 401ks, but it turns out it depends on who you work for, depends on the type of retirement account you have. So if you work for a profit organization like a Walmart, a Home Depot, even the law firm that I work for, I have a a 401k because it's a for-profit company. On the other side, if I work for you know a nonprofit, a school, I probably have what's called a 403b. 
Now, if I work for a municipality, like when I worked for the, um, the city of Philadelphia, I had a 457. If I ever worked for the federal government or anybody who works for the federal government, they have a, what's called a thrift savings plan. So each plan has different rules. So understanding the rules of your plan really make a difference about how much you can contribute. Um, you know, there's a base level of IRS that says, listen, this is what you can contribute. I think this year is like 19,000, maybe 19,500 um, in terms of how much you can contribute. When I say 19,000 or 19,500, 19, something like that, um, you have that amount. But as you get older, the amount that you can do, you're allowed more money to go in. And as you get older, you need to kind of know the rules and regulations for your account because you may be missing out on good opportunities to put more money in. So retirement, understanding retirement is a, is a really good thing. And then understanding just kind of the basis of the stock market, even if you decide not to invest in a single company, at least if you're investing in what we call a fund, which is either an exchange traded fund, which is a exchange traded on the exchange like a stock or you have a mutual fund but you're at least investing i think that's the biggest thing that i have that conversation with people is that you have to you have to invest how you do it completely up to you but you have to invest and you have to understand what you're investing in so that's kind of where i start so i'm gonna bring it back even to like further basics and can you explain to us why investing is important Oh, yeah. Well, investing is important because I, I think when we talk about working, we always, we're exchanging you know, uh, dollars for hours. So if I work eight hours, I get paid for eight hours or however long my schedule is. But at some point, you really can't work anymore. Or more, more importantly, as we're kind of living our lives, you want different streams of income coming in, like especially when we look at you know, the pandemic and what's happening. A lot of people who didn't think they'd be out of work are out of work. A lot of people who had client-facing jobs are not working right now because they can't face clients because of the pandemic. So that's on top of that. So not only exchanging dollars for hours, but on top of that is having multiple streams of income, you know, basically protection kind of as a cushion for yourself is really important. And then on top of that, the, the less fun, the less sexy one is that you want to beat inflation. So a lot of people are saying, well, Courtney, I save. I save a lot of money. And I'm like, that's awesome. But when you have a savings account, you're getting point blah, blah, blah of interest, 0.1% of interest or 0.2 or 0.5, some really like low amount of interest. And recently, um, the interest that you're getting on your bank account has been greatly reduced. So, but inflation is around 2% every year. So you're not even beating inflation if you're just saving. So the stock market, we've talked about averages for a while. We kind of changed the numbers. We used to say 7 to 8%. Now we're after the um, the 2008 crash, we're looking more at like 5 to 6, but you're still better off. You're still like three points or I should say like 3% above inflation. So again, it's just about looking at it that way is that, hey, I can't work forever. So I need some other streams of income. On top of that, you know, um, I and I can't always exchange dollars for hours or hours for dollars or however. But then on top of that is that if I'm just saving, I'm actually losing money because I'm not keeping up with inflation. And we can kind of look at that um, by when I first started driving. I my dad used to leave me like ten dollars. Um, actually, it was twenty dollars. I remember he used to leave me twenty dollars because I got excited because I could fill up my gas tank with ten dollars. And I would have enough to go um, from Philadelphia, New Jersey on the toll. Um, and then I would have like additional money, like if I wanted to stop at Wawa and grab a snack. 
So, you know, this $20 went really, really far. But if I gave somebody $20 now, even with low gas prices, it wouldn't go as far. So that's kind of the practical application or implication of inflation, like what that can do to the, um, the purchasing power of your dollar. I love that your comparisons, they're like amazing and they make a lot of sense. I've like never thought of it or heard of it, like inflation in that type of term. Um, and I know you were talking about like other streams of income. I know on your Instagram, you mentioned seven, the seven streams of income. Could you talk a little bit about what those are so people have an idea? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So the first one is earned incomes. So I think we talked about that a lot. So your basically your earning income is from your your nine to five your regular job, and then your next is interest income. So we're pretty familiar with that because we we pretty much all a lot of people have it when we're talking about you know interest income from a bank. We all know this is not that much, but you still have some. And then you have royalty income, and that's when things start to get a little fancy. So royalty income is income that comes from a copyright, or if you have oil and gas, or some type of natural resources on land that you own copyrights if you have a book deal and you um, and the book publisher they give you an advance but then every single time the book sells you get a, a portion of, of the sale which is a royalty so you get a royalty check so if you have a song and it, and it does well or it doesn't even do well it just kind of goes around you can get a royalty check from that also so royalty income is probably like the most fancy of them because it's not the most common but it's it's a really good stream of what we consider passive income because you don't you did the work a long time ago and now you're kind of reaping the benefits. Then you have rental income where you're renting a property and you know after you pay all the expenses any profit is your rental income. Then you have your profit or business income. So I talk about the IV investor. The IV investor um, is is my business, and any money that like I have my business expenses, but anything I make my I make we'll say I make a thousand dollars. I have expenses of three hundred dollars for the month. I make my business income for that month is seven hundred dollars. So that's my business income. Then we have dividend income and capital gains. So I usually stick them together because dividend income is um, income that you're getting from stocks um, as kind of the company. I don't like to say sharing their profits with you because they're not really sharing you because you're entitled to them. So just to back up for one quick second, when you're an owner of stock, you're a partial owner of a company. And as a partial owner of a company, you're entitled to stuff. You're entitled to profits. Um, you're also entitled to earnings. You're entitled to make decisions for the company, like high level decisions, not every single day. Like, you know, what color are we going to paint the building? That's not your, that's not kind of your wheelhouse, but you're going to make decisions about who's going to be the board of directors. So who's going to be making really big decisions for the company. So one, like I said, one of the things about owning stock is that you're entitled to dividends. And a lot of people are like, yeah, the company loves me. You know, they're going to give me dividends. It's like, no, the company's just not going to give the money to the IRS. And you're probably going, what do you mean not giving the money to the IRS? Is that anytime that there's excess um, profits and earnings in a company, they are required by the IRS tax code to distribute it to their shareholders. So when you're owning a, a, um, a stock, you're a shareholder. And if a company does not distribute this additional or excess profits and earnings uh, to its shareholders, it can be penalized by what we call an excise tax. So, and that's from the IRS. Now, granted, does that happen a lot? No, but that's because a lot of companies are like, okay, we know that song, we know that story. <laughs> let's get, let's make our dividend declaration, and we'll pay our, our shareholders 
um, a portion of profits and earnings after we kind of retain some profits for um, additional business expenses or whatever the case may be. So that's your dividend income. And then you have capital gains. And I think capital gains sounds like the most difficult one, but it's actually the easiest. So if if I purchase a stock today uh, for $1,000, we'll just say, because I like round numbers, and then tomorrow, and this is not typical, but tomorrow it's $2,000, my capital gain, and we'll say next year to make life easier. So next year, I look at the same company that I purchased, and now it's doubled. So now I have $2,000. So my capital gain is $1,000. So I put in 1000 I had a gain of additional 1000 which gave me 2000 in my investment, but I have a capital gain of 1000 Or maybe like just to change the numbers up a little bit is that I invested 1000 but I ended up coming, um, I had a capital gain of 2000 So my investment in total is 3000 but my capital gain is 2000 So that's what I'm going to get taxed on, but that's also a stream of income that I didn't have to work for. All I did was pick a stock year a year ago or years ago, and then I'm able to cash out with my um, at a at a gain. We hope um, at a gain for additional money that I put in, and then that's my my capital gains income. Same thing if I purchased a property. If I purchase a property for a hundred thousand dollars, and then I sell it for two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, we'll say three hundred thousand to make it easy. I purchase it for a hundred thousand and I sell it for three hundred thousand. My capital gain is what two hundred thousand. So that's kind of the idea of capital gain. So it sounds really fancy because it's a capital. It's a gain on a capital asset. So capital assets are stock and real estate. And I think there's a, a couple other capital assets, but those are pretty much the predominant capital assets that we talk about. That's super helpful, and I feel like it's good to know, like the basics of what the seven are as something to like, you know, be working towards when it comes to investing and all that. Um, I'm actually really curious as someone who, you know, was in investing or on the stock market when 2008 happened. And, you know, for people right now that are a little worried about their investments and they're seeing their maybe retirement go down and all that kind of stuff. Do you have any advice or just like, what are your thoughts on, on, everything with the going on that's going on right now? Um, the first thing is to completely relax, relax. Love that. <laughs> it's the market is, so we always say like, oh, the market super is volatile. Like volatility means that it goes up and down. That's what it means. Now the, the pitch of the market, like how high it goes up and how high it goes down becomes a lot more pronounced when there's uncertainty. So it's, I mean, there's nothing more, um, I guess, how do I say it? Nothing more uh, indicative of uncertainty than everything that's going on right now. Like if, if, if we're talking about like just confusion, I don't know what's going on next. Like this is it. So you know, those, the large swings in the market are a result of um, how investors feel about what's going on. They're just uncertain and it just, it's like a roller coaster. So the first thing that you can do is kind of like, be that that kind of um, that like level like be level head be level headed. Um, I think it's also a really good time to educate yourself and learn. This is probably one of the best times to learn because the stock market we like it to be as interesting as watching paint dry. That is a good stock market to me. And what I mean by that is that you don't want these wild swings. But when but there's a lot of things to learn from wild swings. I don't know if you guys. 
uh, if you ladies remember, a couple of months ago, they had what was called a circuit breaker. So the market just kind of stopped at a cut in like in the middle of the trading day. Um, and the reason being is that it dropped a certain value. It, it like the value of the market kind of went down like seven and a half percent, like in a, in a day. And when that happens, it basically turns off and says, you know what? You guys are drunk. Go to your corners. We'll come back in 15 minutes. Um, and that's pretty much what was happening. But that being said, it happened, I want to say like three or four times. And that never happened since like the 90s. Like the circuit breakers did not go off like that and like and they only went off a few times so for them to go off like like multiple times in a month is like unheard of so it's a great time you know as scary as it is it's a great time to learn so that's the so we have being relaxed you know like trying to be like that really cool calm collective as hard as it is um, about your investments you know being educated and then from there it's about making sure that you're properly allocated. So proper allocation, when we say asset allocation, is that are you too much in some um, type of investment? I want to buy too much in some type of investment. So overall, the, the, the general gist of it is that we have stocks, which are um, is equity in a company or ownership of a company. And then you have bonds, which is basically a company or a government's debt. So those are pretty much the two main aspects. And then you have, then you have cash. Cash is, you know, cash. Um, you also have real estate. You also have kind of what we call alternative investments, um, which are gold, cryptocurrency, all of those things that are fancy. But what I've noticed when I talk to a lot of people, they're like, hey, um, you know, I ended up losing a lot of money. And I was talking to people who were like in their 50s. A lot of people in their 50s like reached out to me like, Hey, I've lost a lot of money. I lost like $50,000 in the market. And I was like, okay, you know, that, that can happen. And then I listened to them based on how much they had in their account. I was like, you know, you, it sounds like you lost more than you should have um, if you were properly allocated. And it turns out somebody who's 50, who's maybe 15 years from retirement is like 80% or 70% in stocks. Oh no, that's too much, especially for your retirement to have in stocks. So understanding proper asset allocation of what, what it should look like, what your um, retirement accounts should look like um, in terms of how much the stocks and how much the bonds um, or how much the cash is really important. So kind of like doing like a pulse check, like, hey, you know, is my is my blood pressure too high? You know, is my is my stock portfolio too volatile for what I'm trying to do? Or is it is it just more riskier than it than it needs to be? So that's kind of also the other thing. So relaxing you know, really just under getting some really good education and then also kind of checking yourself to make sure that you're on the right path. And overall, and the reason why you want to check yourself to make sure you're on the right path is that overall, the stock market does go up over time. So if you just relax, make sure that you're in the right place at the right time, um, you know, your portfolio will, will and should. Now, does it always rebound um, completely to what it was before? But just looking at 2008, which is our most recent kind of crash, you know, the, it took, um, the market about three years to rebound from the bottom or like the, that last kind of amount. Um, I, yeah, the bottom of the market, like where it, it kind of stopped, stopped dropping, I should say. I think that's such great advice. And I love how you were saying, like, just educating yourself is really important. And I think I was watching like an interview you did and you said how, like, it's crazy how during times like this, like some people will be fine, really, like almost, you know, like everyone's affected to some degree, but 
you know, you have some people that really like won't make it out of this as, as much as others will, you know, whether it's their business or whatnot. And you were saying how like having like a basic understanding of economics is super important with times like this, because you can kind of predict when it's coming. And, and that just made me think of like, wow, I really do need to be educating myself because you don't want to be in the position where, where you're like totally thrown off guard every time. And, you know, you should be aware of the things to look about because look for, because this is something, you know, that's happened before kind of you know maybe will happen again too so I I really like that you mentioned you know just educating yourself on things like basics of economics and all that stuff I wanted to ask because I'm curious are there any tools that you would recommend someone use who is like a total beginner like me and Casey are this is like all so new to us but I'm sure that Laura is like yeah I know what you're talking about Um, So I'm curious, are there any tools that you would recommend for a super beginner um, as they start to transition into getting into investments and so forth? Um, Yeah. So my biggest tool is my favorite book. It's called One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch is a uh, mutual fund manager, like one of the most successful mutual fund managers like in the history of the stock market but he gives really good common sense advice. Also, I think in terms of the tools, I I think to a certain extent, it's just like opening an account. Um, I like Robinhood to get people started. I know Robinhood is a little bit controversial recently um, because it kind of, it like democratizes um, the stock market, but it's kind of, it provides people with tools um, that they may not be ready for. Um, And what I mean by that is that there's a thing called margin and margin is basically like credit for investing. I don't suggest that people do that at all, you know, especially when you're starting to get when you're first starting investing. It's kind of like when you're start first starting to learn about money, do you give someone a credit card or do you give them cash? Um, and that's the same thing. So you give people cash to get started learning about money. And then at some point where they're able to kind of um, expand their knowledge. We're like, okay, well, let's give you this credit card to see how you do. At least that's how I envision doing it with my kids. That's how I envision to do it. But I, I share that to say, I like Robinhood to get started. I also like TD Ameritrade. They have a platform called Thinkorswim and it's a virtual platform. That's not like a live and it gives you like a simulator. So you can kind of walk yourself through purchasing a stock without you know, the, the fear of doing something wrong. Cause I think what stops most people from getting started is that they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. And I can assure you, you're probably going to make a mistake and it's okay. But if you take your time and, and you do little by little, um, you end up, um, you know, you probably will make mistakes, but they won't be as uh, devastating that if, as if you really put out a lot of money. Gotcha. And then are there any like rules of thumb that you use when you are like in order to decide where you want to put your money and where you want to invest it, depending on like whether that's like stocks, bonds, or even if it's just like what company on the stock market, are there any like tips that you have on how to make that decision on where you want to invest your money? Yes. So I start telling people to invest in what they know. So I tell people to write down the top 10 products that you use on a regular basis. So I have right now, I'm on my Apple computer. I'm on, I'm looking at my iPhone. My, my, my Apple watch is charging, you know, um, I have, I'm on my Apple router. So I should probably put Apple on my list, but that may not be everyone's situation. 
You know, I also go to Target. And this is not me suggesting people to go out and buy Target or Apple, but this is kind of how my life is. So I go to Target. You know, I don't go to Target with a list. I let Target tell me the things that I need from it. You know, So I have this really like interesting relationship with Target. But I share that with you to say is that you invest in things that you know, like, and trust. Start there. Because at the end of the day, you're becoming a partial owner of a company. So you probably should know something about the company. How do they make make money? How long have they been business? Are they profitable? And the things, um, you know, are they innovative? You know, and what I mean by innovative is, do you think they're going to be here um, in 10 years? So those are kind of the questions that I I ask about companies. But the way you can start that inquiry is actually kind of looking in your, for lack of a better word, backyard. Like, what do I use? So like, I go out of my way to go get Sunoco gas. And so again, kind of taking pieces of my life that, you know, I'm, um, you know, a super consumer in and then saying, okay, if I'm a super consumer of this thing, does it make sense for me to be an investor in this particular company? Now, the answer may be no. So not everything that I consume should I be an investor in, but it's a good place to start because I at least very at the very minimum understand how the company works. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with the company. So that's kind of where I start the, the question is like, hey, what do I use? You know, then the next question is, okay, you know, are these companies, do I think these companies are going to be around for 10 years? So I think this is a good investment. And then from there, it's kind of saying, okay, and even if I think it's a good investment, can I invest in them? Like I'm from the Philadelphia area and we have Wawa's. I love Wawa, but Wawa is not publicly, a publicly traded company. It's actually owned by the employees. So again, it's kind of like, hey, I really love it, but I can't invest in it. So just starting with what you know, like, and trust and then moving it from there. That's awesome advice. Yeah, and can you share what your general investment horizon and timeline is? So as you're purchasing, and this might be different from for everybody depending on when their retirement is, but how do you coach people through thinking that through? So thinking what aspect through? How long to expect to hold the investment for? Oh, um, I have a time horizon of forever. <laughs> this company going to be around um, at least, you know, doing as well or if not better in 10 years. So that's kind of the time horizon that I look at. And then to me, if I have money set aside, so it depends on what the purpose of the money I have set aside. If I'm going to, I'm using it to purchase a house, probably going to use it in the next, you know, year, two years. So that money is not going to go into the stock market. Um, anything that, um, if I, if I'm buying, um, doing something a little bit larger project, but it's, it's maybe five years I'm saving for, um, that money also is not going to go in the, in the stock market. So I say money that you have no purpose for, and you don't need to touch it. Um, anything five years or longer. So that's why we're always going to invest retirement, at least at our age, we're at least always going to invest our retirement funds because our time horizon is 30 plus years. So same thing here. So what do I need the funds for? What am I, um, you know, what is my time horizon? What's the purpose of them? That will tell me if I'm going to invest that money or not. And then in terms of how long am I going to be invested? Well, I'm invested forever. However, there's some times where I had to, you know, let a company go. A couple of years ago, I was invested in GE, really liked the company. Um, it was actually right before the stock market crash. So I purchased it. Really liked it, did really well, and then I started noticing that they were um, that there were reports of a company. Um, they said specifically, they said, "Hey, um, 
GE is losing money. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. But they didn't reduce the amount of dividends they were paying out. And so remember when I said earlier in our conversation that dividends are distribution of profits and earnings, but if they're losing money, you don't have profits or earnings. So what are you giving me? Where is this dividend coming from? So to me, that gave me the the idea, you know what? Me and GE are going to have to part ways. And I did. And it ends up that um, they ended up having to cut their dividend maybe about a year after that announcement. And so that's so I but for that announcement and but for them cutting their dividend, I probably would still be in GE because, you know, it's a very long standing company. But every so often I have to know where I have to cut my losses. So with that, I heard something that said, "Mm, I'm really concerned about that bit of information. Let me, you know, kind of get out of this position. So I'm not I'm in it forever. But then there's there's always there can be a situation where it says, you know what? I was in it forever, kind of like divorce. I was I was thinking I was going to marry this person forever, but you know what? Things have changed and now it's time for a, a divorce. That makes sense. So ultimately you want to invest in someone who you can see it being super long-term. But if anything changes along the way where it wasn't how it was when you first initially invested, then it's okay to make that decision that like, look like it's a, it's been a good run. But now it's time for us to part ways. Yep, exactly. So cool. I'm excited to chat about some more advanced aspects of this. I know you have in your Instagram profile that you are a cannabis investor, which is a different type of asset. Uh, Can you share more about cannabis investing? So cannabis investing is probably the most interesting investing. I I think it's like neck and neck with 5G, honestly, because I think... Um, as we watch kind of 5G unfold, I think it's starting to get as interesting as cannabis. But I think cannabis, like, I guess it's the most sexy. Yeah, I'll say cannabis is the most sexy. I think it's in terms of interest, I think it's neck and neck with 5G. So cannabis investing is really interesting um, from a legal perspective, because as we know that cannabis is not legal federally, but it's legal in medicinally, I think it's legal in over 30 states, and it's legally legal for recreational um, or non-medicinal use in about 11 states. So um, it presents a really interesting opportunity uh, generally. But then on top of that is that we're watching a lot of companies. So the major players in the cannabis space aren't even United States companies because of the federal rules and regulations. So all of our big players are all in Canada. But as you can imagine by, you know, growing cannabis or understanding marijuana more specifically, is that marijuana grows in a very warm climate. So there's really good marijuana in California (laughs) Um, because it's warm and it's sunny. It's all those good things that, you know, a a marijuana plant will do well in. So um, there's a lot of um, greenhouses in Canada that, you know, grow marijuana. Um, But there's like basically like a couple of major companies that have partnered with alcohol companies in the United States and tobacco companies in the United States. So you're just kind of watching it unfold like this is very interesting. But the question is that everybody on everyone's minds about cannabis is this. And um, and I should clarify cannabis aspect of cannabis, which is industrial hemp, is legal and it's been legal since 2018. It was legalized under the farm, the farm bill. And I share that with you because that's where the CBD is kind of popping up. I don't know. Everybody's like, CBD, 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 CBD in your lotion, CBD in your hair stuff. You're like, wait, wait, time out. In your makeup. But that's where CBD is coming from. And it's now legal. But 
anything that is over 0.3% of THC, which is, um, I guess, we'll, I don't want to call it psychoactive because t- CBD is also psychoactive. It's just different. Um, I will say intoxicating. Anything above 0.3% of THC, which is the intoxicating portion of um, marijuana, is going to be considered illegal. But the question, kind of going back to the original question, the question is, is like, well, is cannabis ever going to be legal, or excuse me, marijuana ever going to be legal federally? And the answer is, I think so. And I think it's going to be happening in the next five years. Anytime that there is a loss of funds or revenue from any government perspective, they try to find another way to get money. Um, you see that in, um, you saw that in like going back, like in American history, we saw that during Prohibition. Prohibition um, was, you know, when they were saying, you know, the United States is dry, no one's supposed to be drinking alcohol or selling alcohol or whatever. Uh, I don't remember all the language, but it was a constitutional amendment. And then they had the Volstead Act, which kind of put it forward that, you know, how states were supposed to deal with it. So that happened in like the 1920s. And we know about gangsters and all the other stuff. So gangsters kind of like this underworld kind of popped up with, with alcohol because people were going to stop drinking. They just stopped doing it in the traditional way. But over time, states were like, you know what? This is super expensive for us to kind of monitor federal government. We're not doing this anymore. Um, And then um, once the the depression hit, the federal government was like, okay, we basically lost our revenue in terms of taxes. What can we do? Aha, let's let's turn on the switch to to tax, you know, to bring alcohol back to um, being legal and basically allow states to do whatever they want with it. And that's what happened. So I share that to say, you know, we're in a recession right now. Starting to look a little crazy. We're, we're kind of concerned about what this means for the economy. But then on top of that, we're seeing that a lot of marijuana dispensaries are now considered to be essential. So we're like, okay, so on one side, we're thinking about marijuana differently, kind of society-wise. And then on top of that, we're going to start needing tax revenue. We're starting to see the tax revenue push and pull right now. Um, so I think we're kind of going to get legalized maybe in the next five years, maybe sooner. I don't know. But I think that's kind of like our big question. Um, in terms of that, we actually have a lot of, so the American companies, the United States companies that are um, publicly traded are all traded in Canada because one of the conditions of being traded in the United States is that you can't engage in illegal business. So if you're selling marijuana um, even if you're legal in your state, it's not legal federally. So you are now in violation of the law. So um, they're traded there, but there's other companies like um, Philip Morris, um, USA, um, also uh, Constellation Brands. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's another company called Waters Company. They are, so there's other at question, um, companies that are involved. We call them like ancillary companies. So they're not plant touching. They're not touching the plant, but they support the plant. So it's basically another way to kind of invest in these in the marijuana industry or the cannabis industry without exactly touching the plant. So there's just so many different facets of the industry that makes it kind of, lack of a better term, sexy. But like, again, we had this kind of elephant in the room of, hey, this isn't legal, you know, and, and once we figure out that kind of hurdle, that's when it's going to really blow up. But one of the things that I want people to do now is one completely educate themselves about what it is. Cause you, I really don't think people should invest in things they don't understand. That's like a huge no, no in my book. Like if you want to say, what are Courtney's rules? Do not invest in anything you don't understand. So again, learning about cannabis, learning about the industry, and then also just kind of like picking up 
like little bits of information across the uh, across the schedule. That's incredible. And it's so interesting. So as an attorney, Courtney, you and I both have a, a deeper understanding in terms of legalities of this. So because it's not federally permissible, not only is it not able to be traded publicly, but there's a totally different funding model for the cam- cannabis industry and a lack of funding for the cannabis industry as well, and particularly I think if it experiences significant growth because until it's fully federally legalized, banks won't lend to it at least primary, you know, big box lenders will not lend to to the cannabis industry because of the national or federal regulations. Yes. So that creates that creates a unique opportunity too with with a different sort of financial model and different upside to it because there's a lack of the same access to capital that most industries have. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's in speaking of all those things, like the PPP that was available, the kind of uh, small business association funding um, that was available to a lot of businesses that were adversely affected by COVID and the quarantine and everything that comes from in the pandemic generally, they were un- they were ineligible for funding. Um, so because again, they were they're not a legally operating business under the federal government, so they can't get funding for that. But then also in terms of the opportunity, they're trying they actually are trying to pass what's called the Safe Banking Act. So one of the reasons why um, there's no lending available for um, for cannabis is because yes, it's illegal, but there's also um, banking regulations that if they basically kind of aid and abet um, a illegal business, they can lose their um, their FDIC insurance. So a lot of banks are like, as soon as they hear cannabis, they're like, no, oh, oh, no, you got to go, got to go. Because again, it, it puts their business at risk. So they're trying to fix that with the Safe Banking Act. Um, and it's kind of like worked its way. So there's a one um, version in the Senate. There's one version in the House. And they're trying to work it through. I think not everybody's, tr- everybody's trying to get on the same page. We're not quite there yet. But again, they're trying to address these kind of underlying issues and not kind of like really avoiding the big thing, because if you just made it illegal, took it out of the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, we wouldn't be here, guys. Let's not do this, <laughs> you know, but they're trying to kind of piecemeal it also. And they also have um, taken money away from the DOJ to actually enforce um, the the rules and regulations in a state that has a uh, state mandated or state um, state law um, program that has um, a medicinal cannabis program. So they're saying, listen, DOJ, they would norm the DOJ would normally prosecute. And I say the DOJ, I mean, the Department of Justice, they would normally prosecute, you know, businesses that were running in violation of the law. But um, the appropriations committee said, no, no, no. You know, they have a legitimate system that they're working under that we're not going to give you money to prosecute them. So they're kind of like piecemealing it around, but they're really just avoiding the whole big thing of Hey guys, let's just make this legal. Yeah, there's so much development in it and it will consistently develop. It's something to keep your pulse on. And so if somebody's interested in investing in cannabis, they have to invest for if it, if they're looking for publicly traded cannabis companies, those are on the Canadian stock market. How does somebody look into that or access that? Is that something that you can trade on Robinhood or in your typical um, investment account? Yes. Yeah, so the Canadian companies are actually what's called dual traded. Um, they are traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is 
you know, the Canadian version of the New York Stock Exchange. And they're also traded either on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So you can purchase them um, either on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, wherever they're traded. So you can purchase them to you um, as an investor. It doesn't really matter where a company is on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Because if you have a brokerage account like a Robinhood or an E-Trade or a Merrill Lynch, you can just go on and purchase it. So it's it's practically, it makes no difference to an investor where it's traded. But Good to know. That is super, super helpful. And you have positioned your, first of all, you're an incredible fire expert. It's just so wonderful to hear all of the advice that you've had. And you've also done an incredible job of PR and positioning yourself as an expert, building your brand, being featured in Huffington Post and AOL and Forbes. Can you share more about tips that you have for someone who's an expert and they're looking to position themselves and be published in those types of publications? Yeah. So the first thing is, and I always say it's always mindset. So I made a decision, I want to say 2008, 2007, 17, one of those years said, I really want to master Instagram. So I started, you know, taking like observing accounts that, and Instagram was way smaller then. Um, but I started looking at accounts that were doing, you know, were not necessarily in my niche because there wasn't really a lot of companies or a lot of people in my niche. But I started looking at, you know, influencers that were kind of just doing things and said, okay, well, what are they doing that's working for them? What's, what are they doing that, you know, that I could make into like my own? So I, I did that. But then on top of that is that there's a thing called um, help a reporter out. So it's Harrow. And I signed up for Harrow. So I would get these. I get every so often. I want to say I maybe get one a day, but sometimes I've gotten two a day in terms of how to, you know, some reporters looking for an, a subject matter, matter expert. So you can basically respond to their inquiry. And that's kind of how you get um, placed in some of these um these major um, publications. And then on top of that is that you, if you get yourself in kind of groups where other experts in your industry are, you kind of like play off of each other. And I've had a lot of people in my industry, not necessarily, you know, even in my direct like investing lane saying, Hey, Courtney's really good at cannabis. You should talk to her about that. Or, Hey, you know, um, you know, Courtney's really good at that. Or I've done like, hey, you know what? That's not really my thing, but I definitely have somebody for you. So being a a resource for kind of the general public about where people can go to find information. So kind of really being a hub of information for people in your niche and industry is really, really helpful. Um, One thing that I wish I did a little bit more was um, kind of really be an expert on LinkedIn. Um, And what I mean, an expert on LinkedIn is positioning myself as an expert on LinkedIn. And some of the things that I've read thus far, is um, how to kind of basically make a post or make a blog post on LinkedIn directly. So it gets a little bit more traction. It's so interesting that you say that as a female attorney, it's something that I've struggled with a lot, positioning myself on LinkedIn. It seems a little bit easier for me at least to position myself on Instagram where I'm a little further removed from my clients. Um, So that's something that I've struggled with as well. But LinkedIn is definitely something that is growing and has a lot better viewership uh, than, you know, Facebook has currently. It's kind of like Facebook five years ago, maybe. So it's definitely something to look into. And when you were working on Instagram and developing your brand, did you have a few rules of the road that you sort of let guide yourself? Great question. 
Um, some of the things that I did is I basically gave myself a, um, a schedule and I said, okay, you know, what do I, what are my goals? I want to educate. I want to empower. And I want to give a little bit of my personality. So I kind of did like, if you see my Instagram, I have a grid. So that was kind of like, okay, I'm going to educate one. Like, so I have one, one, um, particular post that's always about education. It's either going to be like a list of information. It's going to be a definition, something. So you all, when you see that post, if you're on, you know, if you you follow me, you know that this particular post, ding, 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 is going to be um, educational. So um, I do that. And then I also, um, I also kind of do a lot of inspiration. So that's kind of like, again, if you see another color, like a, a pink or a blue background, you'll kind of say, okay, this is probably going to be a little bit more inspirational, um, may have some finance in it, may not. And then kind of there's other stuff that I kind of talk about, like a little bit more about me, not that much because it is, I am very removed from the Instagram brand, um, but it's, it still kind of provides, like I give myself kind of, it gives me like a, a formula and a formula just makes life a little bit easier if you're trying to think like, oh, what should I come up with? Like, oh, well, my next thing in the pattern is, you know, educational. So I'll stick up this. Um, and one of the things that I also learned on Instagram is that I repost a lot, things that I posted before. Because as my audience grows, some people have never seen things before. And then even my full audience doesn't see all of my posts. So I don't feel, I used to feel bad. Like, oh my gosh, I have to post something new. No, no, you can post. Like if something did really well um, in terms of performance, um, in terms of metrics, I'm going to post it again because it did really well. And it would basically resonate with people. I think that's great. That's what, those are wonderful, awesome tips. And if you haven't followed Courtney, please follow her at the Ivy Investor. Such great content. And Courtney, can you share some of your favorite resources, books, podcasts on learning more about investing and money, of course, other than yourself, which is your fantastic resource as well? I love the Journey to Launch podcast by Jamila Soufran. Um, really like um, also Rich and Regular. Uh, financially intentional. They're all podcasts. Love them. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, there's um, Seeking Alpha is a really good one. The Motley Fool and Investopedia. Those are my favorites. Oh, and even Yahoo Finance is really good. Love it. Those are such good recommendations. And where can everybody find you? So on Instagram, I'm the Ivy Investor. So that's T-H-E-I-V-Y Investor. Then on Facebook, the Ivy Investor. And then on Twitter, the Ivy Investor. And then it, on YouTube, I'm still like a budding YouTube channel. I'm still not quite there yet, but it's, uh, it's YouTube, the Ivy Investor. I love the consistency. <laughs> it's just by luck. Sometimes, you know, you'll have like some kind of someone like years ago has kind of reserved it and you kind of get stuck. But thankfully, you know, my name is pretty unique. Love it. And if you haven't grabbed your TikTok, make sure you grab your TikTok n- username as well. Well, thank you so, so much. You have been absolutely fantastic. Such an incredible resource for everybody. Everybody, if you love this conversation, please follow Courtney on Instagram. All of the links are in the show notes and give her some love. Leave a comment on one of her recent posts to share what you loved about this episode of the podcast. Courtney, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. We so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks. Thank you.